We are still in the study in the life and the ministry of Jesus and um, probably got about another month or so doing it. It would really be cool if I could space this thing out to where when we start study that final act, the resurrection, it'll be on Easter morning or resurrection morning. Wouldn't that be cool? We'll see. Lord's will. But uh, turn in your Bible, if you would, please, um, to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 24. We've been in Matthew for a few weeks now. We are... Um, studying what they call the Olivet Discourse, which Olivet meaning that, you know, it took place on the Mount of Olives. It's a teaching on, again, the second coming, uh, prophetic messages on, uh, you know, the the second coming. Uh, and again, people sometimes gets confused between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. And, um and again, just so you know, that Matthew 24 and 25 is, is literally dealing with that question that the disciples had asked, you know, what will be the sign of your coming and what will be the sign of the end of the age and, you know, and meaning the end of humanity. And so these parables that he gives now in Matthew 24 and 25 are warning parables, but it's warning parables to those that perhaps might be alive during the dispensation of the seven years of tribulation. But there's principles we can pull out of, you know, out of the this discourse for the Christian, um, you know, the here and now believer, you know. And so you'll hear me allude to how we can apply this. But we don't ever want to take the Word of God out of its context, you know. We, we talk about the ten virgins. Well, hopefully we'll, we'll get into that this this morning, but uh, you, you know, you always hear people applying it to the Christians, to the here and now, and let's be wise and let's not be like the foolish ones. Well, that's it's true, but really, he's talking about believers that are going to be alive during the seven years of uh, tribulation, not for the pre-rapture Christian. But again, I would say God wants us to be wise and not foolish. Amen, guys. And so we will we'll make some we'll make some applications there, but. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, and I'd like to pick it up right about where we left off last week, and that would be around verse 44. And uh, again, we'll read right into chapter 25 and look at the parable of the ten virgins. Starting with verse 44, he says, Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think, uh, you think not the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? Whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find him doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But if, but and and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming. And shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he's not looking for him, and an hour that he's not aware of, and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamp and went forth to meet the bridegroom. 
Five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready made uh, went in with with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, and he said, Verily I say unto you, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Let's stand together with Bible in hand and pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. And again, I know I, I pray this prayer so often, Lord, but the desire that you've placed in our hearts as Christians to want to know it, to be well acquainted with it, to be able to give the reason why we have a hope in these last days, Lord. And so I thank you for that. I thank you for this 40 minutes or so that we carve out to come together and to be Bereans, to be students, disciples. So thank you for that, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, that um, for most part, we have an open heart. But if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, they have closed their hearts, maybe for some some reason, maybe a, a weighty matter upon their hearts. Maybe it's just they're going through a difficult time right now and it's just real hard for them even to get out here. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon such a one and you would lighten that load just for such a time as this to study your word. Maybe there's something that's going to be said this morning that's going to deliver them or just set them free. Oh, Lord, please, Holy Spirit, have your way. We love you so much, Lord. Thank you for your word again. Pray for that anointing upon the mind and heart to receive it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said together, amen, amen. Again, most commentaries that if you open up will say these are warning parable, parables. And so, again, it's, it's well worth, again, reminding everyone what a parable is. Because so many times we look at a parable or the commentators, commentators, the commentators. Well, that sounded like something from West Virginia. But um, the, the commentaries will um, try to pull a lot of things out, out of its context. A good commentary will say the, the, the application can be, should be, and then they would make it. But these are warning parables. Most will agree with that. And um, 
again, dealing with a parable, meaning it's an earthly story that they are well familiar with. You know, we read the parables throughout the Gospels and, you know, the parable of the sower. Well, not too many people sow seed like they did in the ancient biblical days and no one really knows what it means to be sown among stones and thorns and thistles. But they did. They were well aware of these stories. So para, meaning um, to, to, um, a, to throw something alongside of a spiritual truth. And so it takes a little digging sometimes for you and I to grasp the, the biblical meaning, what it would mean to them, because that's important. Not what it means to us, but what it meant to them. And so the first thing we look at in verse 45 here, it says, Who then is a faithful and a wise servant whom his master made rule over his household, and to them he gave in due season? Now, what I want to point out here, and this is where we can make application for the believer today, is where he says, who then is a faithful and a wise servant? More literal, Weiss in his work puts it, who is a faithful and a sensible servant? You know, and, and, I, and again, I, I think that's very applicable, you know, that we are to be Christians, believers, followers of Christ who are faithful, but also sensible, you know, they don't, they don't put their brain on a shelf when it comes to their walk with the Lord. They don't just grab everything that comes by every wind of doctrine. They, in fact, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, one of my favorite verses, you know, Bible passages, is, it, it goes um, that we are to give ourselves as a living sacrifice. But he goes on and it says, which is our reasonable service to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. This is a reasonable service, my old King James. Literally, the interpretation is, which is the most logical thing a Christian can do? It's logical for a Christian. It's a sensible thing as a Christian. It's a faithful thing as a Christian to present himself to his king, his Lord and his master. That is a faithful and a sensible servant of God. So what's illogical? What is nonsensible? It's the person who says, I'm a Christian, you know, but he doesn't do anything. He's not a servant in, in any capacity at all. Now, now, listen, when you talk about servants, you know, people right away want to go, well, that must mean like, you know, the, the, the elders and, and maybe the deacons. No, no, no. Every believer who names the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior in some capacity the most logical thing you and I could do is to serve him because we love him. And we love him because he first what? Loved us. We, we respond to his love. Amen? So for someone who just, and again, I don't mean any offense. You know, I love all you guys, you know, with all my heart. But just to stay behind your closed doors and just kind of sneak in here on a Wednesday or a Sunday and then sneak back out and your co-workers don't know who you are or what you're all about and you don't, you don't serve the Lord. It's just not logical. You're going to get buried. You know, you're not going to grow. But that's what this verse, you know, he's, he's a faithful and a servant to the, the one the master can give a responsibility to. Now, listen. I don't know, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, uh, I, I brought this up last week, but I'd like to do it again, the logical and sensible. Listen to what it says. But the end of all things is at hand. 
Now, this is a New Testament Christian. This is the Apostle Peter. Peter and Paul and James and John, all those guys, really believed that Jesus could come back for the church in their lifetime. Now, if they were alive today, they would go, Oh, man, could he be coming back in our lifetime? But the end of all things is at hand. So here's a sensible and a logical servant. He goes, Therefore, be earnest. Uh, and and discipline, he said, well, I'm sorry, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayer. N- literally, it means the logical Christian is earnest and he's disciplined in his prayer. So a sensible Christian is a Christian who has a prayer life. He is a Christian that gets up in the morning or maybe it's in the evening and he knows how to either kneel beside his bed or go into his prayer closet. He has one on one with the Lord and he talks with the Lord. And that's a sensible and a faithful believer. He goes and says in verse 8, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sin. And that is something that I think it is sensible for a Christian. He is the one who knows how to show deep love. Not just phileo as in friendship, how you doing, high five. But there's an agape love even within his heart. There's something deep within his bowels or within his heart where he wants to even, you know, love his other believers, his brothers and, and his sisters in Christ. And guess what? You won't be so offended when you have love one for another. The idea that you cover a multitude of sin is that when someone falls, you're not so offended about that. You're able to go to that person and come alongside of them, restore such a one in the, in the spirit of gentleness and meekness. That's a sensible Christian. That's a logical Christian. That's a faithful believer, a follower. He also says in verse 9, be hospitable one to another, or hospitable to one another. In other words, ch- just cheerfully share your home. Invite someone over for dinner. You know, come alongside of someone and just show them just the real nature of Christ. In verse 10, as each one has received the gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold um, of the grace of God. And there he says it once again. Just use your gifts and your talents that God has given you as, as a believer, as a sensible Christian, and use them to serve one another. He says then, and I'll I'll close with this verse in 1 Peter 4 here. He says, if anyone speak, let him speak as the oracle of God. God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as, as with the ability which God supplies. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong all the glory and dominion forever and ever. In other words, everything we do in serving God, ministering to one of God, just being that faithful servant and steward of God, do it all that, so in order that God would receive all the glory, not some, all the glory. And I think that's it. it's exactly where I left off last week. Listen. People are going to compliment you. People are going to thank you. You don't want to be one of those false, false, you know, humble kind of, oh, no, don't, don't thank me. Give all the glory to God and all that. You know, you don't want to look like a nut. You just, it, thanks, you know, isn't, good, isn't Jesus good, man, when he uses us like that? Just redirect it. That he gets all the glory and he gets all the, the honor and dominion forever and ever. Amen, guys? I don't want to touch his glory. I don't know about you, man, but that's one thing I don't want to touch this side of heaven, especially on the other side of heaven. Um, But then he goes on, he goes, blessed is that servant whom the master, when he comes, will find him doing. 
He's going to, and again, the New Testament teaches that there is going to be that for the believer a, a, a day of reward. You know, and, and it's a blessing that when you know in your own heart that you're doing exactly what God has called you to do, no matter what it is you're doing. You might be an usher. You might be someone helping in the parking lot. You may, might be someone helping in the food pantry. You might be helping somebody in the hospitality. It doesn't matter. But what does matter is that when he does come back, and I mean even, I'm not, he, not the second coming, but before he comes and raptures the church, what a glorious thing it is. That you're doing what he's called you to, to do as a Christian. Amen, guys? And again, you don't want to be goofing off. You don't want to be, you know, going to the bars at night and coming home with the, you know, as a drunkard. You don't want to be smoking a joint with just trying to relax the day off. Now, stop that. You know. You're saying, oh, Harry, you're getting pretty heavy. Listen. As soon as they legalize marijuana... You know, in a lot of countries, states, they're doing that. You're going to have the millennials saying, well, if we can drink a beer, reading a Bible, have it. Well, it's legal. Let's just smoke a joint along with it. You watch. And I'm not a prophet, you know. But that's what's going to happen next in the church. You know, let's have Bible studies and bars. Let's have smoke a joint while we're doing. No, no, no. Blessed is that servant when he comes back and he finds that servant doing what he's called him to do. Amen, guys. Oh, a lot of lot of puzzle faces out there. All right, Matthew um, in twenty five verse twenty one. We'll read this next week, but it says where it says the Lord will say, "Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful of a few things. I will make you ruler over um, many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord." And that's exactly what he said in verse forty seven in our text here. Where he says, surely I say unto you, um, he that uh, he will make him ruler over his goods. But look at verse 48. But if that evil servant says in his heart, please uh, highlight in your Bible. Oh, the master delays his coming. You know, he's an evil servant. You know, that says, that thinks, now my master's not going to be back a while. So what does he do? He begins to beat his other fellow servants and he eats and he drinks with the other drunkards. We'll continue right in verse 50. The master of that servant will come in a day that he's not looking for him at an hour when he's not aware of him. And he will cut him uh, in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. And there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of the teeth. Now, I'm, I'm glad I said, look, guys, these are parables, warning parables. And what he's specifically warning, again, is the end-day believer, uh, the uh, Jewish believer in, in that time period. Like, like you don't want to be wallowing around with the drunkard and with the riotous person. You want to be found doing and serving the Lord. Well, again, the principle is the same for you and I. Peter warned us about being sensible and faithful followers of Jesus. You know, we don't know the hour or the day the Lord's going to rapture his, his servants from the face of the earth. Man, I got a gut feeling it's soon and very soon. How many of you guys think it's coming a lot quicker than, you know, half the church is thinking right now? He's coming, man. And we want to be ready for him. Um. What, what, what do we get out of, of, of this parable, the faithful and the wise servant for, for us? Um, I, I think three things. This is how we get ready. 
for, for his return for the church. Number one, I think the very first thing is you got to get saved. Now, that's probably 99% of you folks here today, you're, you're probably saved. And you know exactly what I mean about being saved. You're born again from the spirit above. above. Something supernatural has taken place in your heart. Please, can I say that again? Something supernatural has taken place in your life. You know, it's where the Holy Spirit comes into your life. Your dead man, the man that was caught in the trespass of sin, the one that's dormant, he's just dead in you. The Holy Spirit comes in and it meets your spirit and you've been born again into a new life. And your new life is nothing like your old life. Amen, church? You're born again from above. You think differently. You act differently. You want to read your Bible. You don't have to do it, but you want to. You want to tell your loved ones about Jesus. Now, you don't have to. You want to. You know, it's not legalism. It's all about grace. Something's totally changed in your life. I say this with tenderness and compassion. And I hope it's not offensive. But if you're naming yourself Christian and there hasn't been a change then one needs to go in his own heart and really examine your heart. Paul uses a word in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11 where he says, let a man therefore examine. It literally means let him scrutinize. Examine it. Are you born again by the Spirit of God? Or have you, it's just been your life. You know, you, you came out of the womb, womb thinking you were a believer. And, and you, you know all the Christian hymns and you, you know Christian people. But honestly, in your heart, you can't say, I've been born from above. Then I'll give you that opportunity at the end of our service today. But please pray about it. Don't be like the five foolish ones. Anyway. Going back, so you have to be, you have to get, uh, be born again. Romans three twenty five says, "Whom God has sent forth to be propitiation um, through faith in His blood, to be declared His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God." It's, you know, Jesus or God presented His Himself to be the very mercy of God. The very mercies of God, that propitiation. You know, the, the word propitiation in, in the Greek, is, is, it's hard to fully understand it. But the best way to understand it is if you remember, you Old Testament students, when the Ark of the Covenant, when the lid was placed upon it, it was almost a three-foot square and it was solid, a solid plate of gold. The high priest would come in and take the blood of the sacrificial lamb and pour it out upon his propitiation. Jesus had became our propitiation. God demonstrated that by giving us Jesus. That's how someone gets saved. They realize that it's just solely based upon the blood of the lamb. The blood that was shed on Calvary. Romans 5, 9 says this, much more than being now justified by the Lamb, we shall be saved from the wrath, from the judgment. The reason why you and I are not going to be judged is because of the propitiation, the blood that was poured out, God's mercy being shown through, the, through, 
through the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He says in Ephesians 1.11, in whom we have redemption, how? Through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. See, this is what scares me today. There is such this heavy um, effort. It's being done very deceitfully, but there is an effort running rampant through Christendom today. Let's remove the cross. It's offensive. Let's not talk about the blood that was shed. Let's not talk about the bruised and battered body. Hey, that's not going to make anyone feel good about themselves. We need to feel good about ourselves. We need to, you know, heighten self-esteem. Not tell everybody they're sinners. You would have to take two-thirds of Paul's teaching out of the Bible. The cross is offensive to those that are perishing. But to you and I... The cross, the blood, it's our very lifeline. It's what connects us to God. So if you want to get saved, then look at the cross, the blood that was shed, the broken body. Think of the seven statements on the cross. And I won't do a Bible study on them, but just remember, Eli, Eli, Lamesh, Vakthani. God took, turned his face from his son because he was being judged for us. You cannot get saved outside of the cross. No way. You can't be good enough. You cannot be. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, but this is the message I want you to take back home to your loved ones. You can't be good enough. Your your good will never outweigh your bad ever in God's eyes. The only way you can get into heaven is to only one was good and it was Jesus Christ. So we are, we are to, to get saved. Not only are we to get, get saved, we are also to compel others to get saved. Did you know that? If you really want to be ready and get ready, not only getting saved, once you are saved, start to compel. Start to reason the scriptures out. Start going to your loved ones. Start going to your co-workers. Compel them. Literally, it says in Luke 14, 23, and the Lord said unto my servant, go out into the highways and the hedges. Compel them to come that my house might be full. Compel them. The word compel, according to Mr. Strong, it means to necessitate, to compel, to drive. It literally means, but we won't want to use it this way, but the word also is used to force them. Now, you can't force anyone to come to Christ. That would be easy. I'd get back into grappling and lifting weights, smack a few people around, hey, get saved. Boy, that would be easy. My, isn't it hard to go to the ones that you love and say, listen, you're a sinner. Why are you calling me? Yeah, well, you're a sinner, but you need to get saved. I am. My good will outweigh it. It's hard, isn't it? But that's what the word literally means, to compel. Why? It's because we never know when this lifetime is up and over and done with. Right? I bury, I've done a lot of funerals over many years of ministry. And I've done them from infants all the way to their 90s. You just never know when that time is up for anyone. My kid brother was only 50 when he went home to be with Jesus. My mom was 48. How many of you guys know of people going, my goodness, that person should still be alive today. That's why we compel them with such urgency. Come, come to the foot of the cross. 
Not only do we get saved, but we have to be busy in getting ready for the Lord's return, for the rapture. What do we mean about getting, get, get busy knowing him. That's what I mean. You know, the Bible tells us in Second Peter 3.18, to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's too many young believers for my liking. And it could be because growing in the Lord doesn't mean a, a years you know, I, I, met, I met people who have gotten saved and they're one year into their walk and they're so in love with the Lord and so into the, into the word and they're growing. They're already in ministry and you think, My, this guy's been saved for like, what, a hundred years, you know? And no, I've only been saved for a year and a half. It blows my mind sometimes. And I've met people who've been saved all their lives and they're not sensible. They're not wise. They, they're not busy growing in the the, the, the knowledge of God's grace and his mercy. We are to grow in our relationship with the Lord. Amen, church? So if, you're, if you feel like you're, you haven't grown one iota, you're like, you're the same, you've been, been saved for 50 years. Well, put the milk aside maybe and grab a hold of some sirloin steaks and let's start growing together. So not only do we get saved, not only are we to get busy learning about him, but we also need to be active. That's a must as we're waiting for, for the rapture. We are to get ourselves involved in ministry, as I said earlier, serving the Lord in some capacity, you know. So with all that being said, now let's go look in, at um, the parable of the ten virgins here. And again, when you read through this, as we already have. Um, this is totally a Jewish wedding. If you remember a couple weeks ago, and it might, it might have been last week, I said it as well. When we deal with our eschatology, our, the prophecies about the second coming of Jesus, we really want to focus in, um, uh, Skip Isaac, geocentric, Skip said, we want to really f- focus on the center of all prophecy, that would be Israel, and then we would narrow it down to Jerusalem, and then ground zero will be the Temple Mount. Everybody wants to find where America is in prophecy. Who are those ten toes of Daniel's vision? And who, you know, what, what, what one is crushed when the rock is, comes out, you know, and all that. And there, those things are important. You know, I love that study. Um, but if you really want to know prophecy, just keep your eyes on Israel, what's happening over there even today. I think it was very important um, to recognize Jerusalem as, as the capital. I really do. Not just because I love Israel and the Jewish people, but I think prophetically that what happened, you know, was it last year, moving the embassy there? I, I, not just because I want it there, but I think scripturally, prophetically, that's an important puzzle, piece of the puzzle, you know. But anyway, the parable of the ten, the ten versions here, um, we just got to remember, we, it's Jewish, it's Jewish philosophy, it's Jewish ideology, it's Jewish even theology. It's not Christian, it's not church. Though we would like to think, okay, there was five smart Christians and five dumb ones. Um, that might be true. But that's not what the, the parable is pointing out to, or pointing to. 
It says in verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened unto ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Well, let's talk about this for a second. Um, a Jewish wedding, um, nothing like ours, right? Just went to one just the other day. Sal and I did a wedding together. And it was a festive time. You know, people were just enjoying each other. The bride looked beautiful, you know. And But back during biblical days, during biblical days, um, the engagement would take place when, when the couple were very young. Prearranged marriage. Did you ever heard of them? You know, prearranged marriage. So two dads get together at the local, you know, uh, deli and... Uh, eating a few falafels together and they start conversing and you know one dad you know Matt says to you know the other dad hey you know I, I gotta I think she's gonna grow up to be a hottie and, and I got a pretty fat dowry here and you know and um, and then the day, you know, and so they arrange it, all right? And, and uh, so the fathers make the arrangement. And, and, and for most part, the, the, two, the two youngsters, the two kids, won't, won't even meet each other. Not for a long time. They don't even know that the dads arranged this thing. And, um, you know, again, it's something I'm going to say, and I jotted it down in my notes. You know, um, I don't know if that's a bad idea. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think it's practical. Prearranged marriages and two families getting together, and but it does show this. It shows that love is m- more of a commitment than it is a feeling. Yeah, think about that, though. I mean, if families were still that tight together and they were just committed to their kids and they wanted their kids to have the best for each other, you know, and this would this would work, you know, and and they would grow to love each other. I think marriage is more of a... And especially, how, how many you guys have been married for a while now and you say, you know what, that's so true. You know, Arm and I have been married for 40-some years and you know, it's more of a commitment now than it is an emotional feeling. I mean, I love her to death, but now the commitment is to finish strong together and to be able to rock on the porch together and go, wait, did it, honey, you know. <laughs> Have your kids come over and thank you for staying together, you know, and being an example to your grandkids. And so I say that to you, you older Christians, stick in there, man. It's a commitment that young, you, you young, young youngsters, stick in there because it sure does get fun later when you're more friends than you are anything else when you get my age. Amen. Well, so there's the engagement. That's when they they're young. There's the betrothal. Betrothal meant that's one year before they actually go through the ceremony. They do speak vows. There is a contract drawn up right before um, the wedding ceremony. Again, no physical contact yet. There's no consummation of that marriage, that union. Um, in fact, there's something biblical. If you read in your Bible where it says a widow who is a virgin, you think. Well, how does that happen? Well, that means that they were in the middle of their betrothalment and um, the husband dies. She's still a widow, you know. And, um, and then it goes into another law um, for the other son to marry her. But um, 
again, during that one year, this is where the husband um, proves that he can prepare for his bride. And usually he's building a house on the back end of his father's house. And then once it's all done, could take up to a year, it goes into the next where it is the wedding feast. And so you kind of get a, an idea. So he does, he'll go to he'll go to the bride's house, right? And there's usually a, a large courtyard. And the, the best man, the groomsman, he'll be with the groom. There's torches lit. There's this big ruckus. Horns are being blasted. And this is the this is the groom. This is the calling for his bride. Come out, uh, Song of Solomon. Come away with me. Come away with me, my dove. And she gets her girls together. Man, they're all decked out in all kinds of beautiful clothing. Man, and torches are lit. And then there's a parade. And they will take the long way around through all the alleys through the parade. Mazel tov, you know, you know, and people are throwing things at them, you know, you know, candy and treats and sometimes coinage and all. And it's just this beautiful thing. And then when they get to the father's house, the guards are there. And the ones with the wedding garment goes in. And the ones who don't stay out. And they go in and then the door is shut. So now you have a kind of a, and even for the seven days, there's still no consummation. At the end of the seventh day, the groomman will walk over to the bride, take her by the hand and walk over to the groom. He will put their hands together and the, the groomsmen will make everyone leave on the seventh day. And that's when the consummation, I mean, if you can see the picture in your mind of what it's going to look like. When we are raptured, going into the marriage supper of the Lamb, being introduced maybe by the Holy Spirit, and, and being ushered in for seven years, dressed in the wedding garments of Christ, feasting where the consummation between the, the bride and Christ takes place. Oh, man, I can't wait for that. Anyway, I got so ahead of myself. But... Um, these torches, though, let me, let me bring that up. The torches, these torches, they were a, roughly around three foot to four foot long. And um, there was a wire mesh. And there's rags stuck inside the wire mesh. There's olive, they're soaked in olive oil. The lamp is lit. And if the oil looks like it's going down during the parade, a servant will come along, soak the rag again, so the blaze could keep burning to make their way through the town to get to the groom's home. You kind of get, have a mind's eye picture now of this parable. Um, the crazy thing about this parable, and I'll bring it out again. Well, no, let's do this. Now in verse 2. Now five of them were wise, five of them were foolish. That word um, wise and foolish, is there, it's important, so keep your eyes there. Uh, those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil. See, they had an appearance. They had the lamps, but they didn't have any oil. They probably even had the, they had, uh, even had the wedding garment on, uh, but there's no oil. There's no way for them to see through the streets. And while the bridegroom was delayed, they slumbered and they slept. At midnight, that's a crazy time to show up. 
But the point he's making at midnight, this is the most unexpected, unlikely hour to show up to to begin this parade. And the point is, when Christ comes, for a lot of people who might have an appearance, but yet there's no oil, oil being symbolic of the Holy Spirit, they, they look like a Christian, they got all the Christian lingo and coffee cups and bumper stickers, the one thing they lack, though, is the Holy Spirit of God. And now they're desperate because Jesus showed up at the most unlikely. Oh, I didn't think he would come back while I was like living like this. Oh, I, and, and, and I think it's, again, these are warning parables. And he goes on and he says, it was midnight and the cry, he heard the cry. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. All those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going to go out. But the wise said, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but rather go to those who sell it and buy for yourself. At midnight, there's not a place. It's ta- what he's talking about here. It's just too late. You don't go to the local store at 12 midnight and ask for a gallon of olive oil. They were just caught unaware. But while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who went in, who were ready, they went in to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open it. Hear the desperation, the cry. Almost sounds like when God judged the world the first time with Noah. Once that door was shut and it started to rain and God began to judge the world. The door was shut. There's no other chance. Listen, at the rapture of the church, there's still a chance for people to still make it in during the seven years. But at the second coming, for those that say, wait a minute, I didn't think this was true. But when he does come back, for those he's going to judge, it's too late, is what he says there. He answered and he said, look, I don't know you. Now, this is a very, this is a, a, a complicated word in the Greek. It could even it could say this: I don't recognize you, or Thayer in his work on this passage. I never knew you. You know, I've never had a relationship with you. I don't recognize you. You got the clothes on. You got a good-looking Bible there. You got the bumper stickers and the coffee mugs. But I don't know you. See, that's why I started off this morning saying you need to be saved. Because that's the only way God in heaven will ever be able to know you. Is if you know his son. So don't toy around with that. You know, don't, don't, don't be wise. Be sensible. Think about it. You're a sinner, man. I'm a sinner. We're only saved because of God's grace. We can't work our way in. We can't earn our way in. Even when we get saved, there's nothing really we can do to make God have an, a, a, a wow moment. Oh, wow. Did you see how well Rich did work? Holy Spirit, get a load of Rich. It's never going to happen. We deserve judgment. We deserve to go to hell. That's that. God gave us his mercy. Gave us his grace. But he says, I don't recognize you. I don't know you. Another passage, be gone from me, you worker of iniquity. For I never knew you. I never recognized you. And I want everyone here. 
I want everyone here to know him and not come in and out of these doors thinking that that's your pass. Just coming. He says in verse 13, Watch therefore, for you don't know the, neither the day or the hour when the Son of Man is coming. You know, what is the lesson? Definitely it's a warning parable. Be righteous, be ready, be responsible. Get saved. You know, be busy, be active. Think about the words of these warnings. Where are you at today? You know, why 10 virgins? We don't know why. Maybe he's just trying to make a very strong point. The number 10 was very important to the Jewish mindset in their ideology. You need a 10 to have a Passover meal. You need a 10 to have a synagogue. We have 10 virgins here. Number play, perhaps. I don't know. Is it trying to say that half the church will be raptured and half won't? Half will be ready in the, during the seven years and half? No, I just think he's trying to make a very strong point. He's emphasizing that he's going to come when no one's really expecting him. In fact, it says when they say peace and safety, then comes what? Sudden destruction. People are going to be so duped by the Antichrist. People are duped today with the precursors of Antichrist. John even says, hey, you heard the Antichrist is coming. Well, let me tell you, he's already here. Therefore, there are many Antichrists, plural. Already today, there's, they're here amongst us even today. Those who take away the importance of the Bible, those who take away the validity of the cross, those who tell you it's perfectly okay to live any way you want to live. God says it's okay. He loves you. And he said, you know, homosexuality is just another life. No, it is, but God says it's an abomination. And he wants everyone, liars, cheaters, adulterers, he wants them to repent and come to the foot of the cross. You know, in verse 10 where it says, And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. The Greek word, well, the, the, um, the Syriac version, or translation of it, and also the Latin Vulgate of it literally reads, um, He came with his bride. So it really does kind of give you the model or the outline of our eschatology, the rapture then the church in heaven, then the marriage supper of the Lamb, then the millennial reign, then the second coming. I don't know. You know, maybe we can wrap it up here because, hey, Rich, if you could make your way out. You know, again, I think the two main lessons that we can, as, as Christians, can apply to our lives is that we want to make sure that we don't wait to the last minute. Don't, don't be procrastinators. Don't. Um, how many of you guys have a problem with procrastination? We, man, we have a big club, don't we? Procrastination. Man, I am the king of it. You know? And I'm a, just to keep my dirty laundry out there, too, in my house, every room, there's an unfinished project. It might even be a molding this long. How many of you guys are like that? Right? Thank you, guys. I don't know why I keep putting it off. I always say, you know what? I'll get to that later. 
Honey, how long will it cost? Cut? It's one little piece of wood. Babe, I'll get to that. You know. <laughs> what really drives her crazy is when there's a plumbing problem and I keep putting it off. <laughs> Listen, one of the things that we can't do as Christians is put things off. I want everyone to be saved and born again. But don't put off growing. Don't put off serving. Be reasonable. Be sensible. Our Lord's coming for his church. Amen? Let's stand together. Last thing that I want to throw out there, hopefully thought-provoking. Hey, give us some of your oil. Did you notice that? Hey, give us some of your oil, man. No, we can't do that. We might not have enough for our own. Remember, it's just a story. It's not trying to make any kind of doctrinal thing there. But the one thing we can say is, when it comes to spiritual things, you can't borrow them. There's no way of borrowing. You know, I've heard even young people, mom and dad, they were faithful believers, servants of God, busy. Oh, man. But what about you, young person? What are you doing? Serving, growing, growing. And listen, you can't borrow anything spiritual. You want a deeper walk and a deeper relationship with the Lord? Man, let me tell you, start serving him in some kind of capacity. Whether it be at your school, here at the church, but serve him. Would you lower your heads for me just a second? Again, I had said earlier that I want to always give that opportunity for anyone just by the raising of your hand, they just, you just want to surrender your heart totally to him. If that's you, would you just please raise your hand and then just put it back down? You want to totally surrender your life. Okay. Can I ask you guys that raised your hands? Rich is going to end, end us in a song. But would you be kind enough and bold enough? Remember, Jesus hung on the cross for your sins.